Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter, will introduce you to Michael Trout. This episode is the ninth in our series with Michael Trout. Be sure to visit us on Podbean, iTunes, or Google Play for previous podcasts, as well as future episodes. And now your host, Karen Doa Buckwalter. So hello, everybody. Um, welcome back to the Attachment Theory and Action podcast series with Michael Trout. Uh, we're so happy to have you here again today, Michael, and um, continuing the series with you. So thank you for joining us again. Morning. So our question today uh, is getting more into scientific advances that um, confirmed or perhaps it disconfirmed some things that we thought and now often the 90s are referred to as the decade of the brain where we learn so much about how the brain holds memories, how the brain um, embodies store trauma. Um, and so I think in certain ways we, we had such affirmation of theories that we had um, in many ways, I think in lots of ways, but maybe there were some ways that we were proven wrong too. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. So what are some of the scientific advances that you feel were important in terms of clinical work that have come about? Well, please understand that if you ask me that question, which you just did, you're gonna get a, a fairly personal answer, uh, an answer that uh, reflects really what, what part of advancing science in a variety of areas hit me the hardest or supported my work the greatest or challenged me the most to do rethinking, by which I mean to acknowledge, you could ask that question of 10 other clinicians or researchers and get at least 10 different answers about what's most important. Yes. And maybe, I, maybe my answer really is going to reflect what's most, what was most important to me. Well, that's great because uh, your answer is one I'm probably the most interested in of, of anyone's. So what was most important to you about this? Well, believe it or not, a real turnaround book for me was uh, Eric, by a, a person not even in our field at all. It was a snail researcher named Eric Kandel. Uh, he actually won the Nobel Prize for his uh, work with snails. But it seems on the face of it so incredibly mundane and so not having anything to do with attachment or even with baby development, but it surely does. Uh, the short version of his work is that he showed us that snails not only remember stuff, but he showed us in a way that is almost impossible to turn your back on, that all of us are obliged by evolution to remember stuff. It's not as if it's a big debate whether we can, whether we're capable of it, when we do. His point after, after all of this work with really dumb, tiny animals was that everything and everybody remembers because we need to, because evolution 
set us up so that experience needed to matter to us, else we would just die off. If whatever happened to us was just disregarded by us, not stored somewhere for improvement in our behavior or improvement in some aspect of our survival later, by later I mean that afternoon or a hundred years later, our, our offspring, then we would be dumb. And he claims that not only are snails not dumb, but nothing is really dumb. We're obliged to see, observe, store our experience so that we can do it a little better next time. And even when we don't do it a little better next time, that doesn't interrupt the, the flow of data. So Candell made it uh, unavoidable to consider memory as a survival strategy. And I think, while he didn't make direct implications for child development, unless asked, by the way, and he was asked and he did, but not in his book, unless directly asked, he, he would only say that uh, the environment presents challenges that the organism doesn't just absorb and then either live or die as a result of. The environment presents challenges that the organism works with and changes ever so slightly behavior as a result of. So if a, if a, um, if a zebra is at the watering hole and lions are in the environment more than they were yesterday, the zebra does not just uh, wait for the lions to attack and think, oh well, and then birth offspring who also say, oh well, that lion on that day not only responds so, that, so as to not get eaten, but if that lion is pregnant, excuse me, that zebra responds that way. If that zebra is pregnant, that zebra will pass on to the unborn also a certain reactivity to certain sounds or smells or movements in the environment that will say, here's a time when you, could, you should not pay so much attention to having your head down in the water. You should have your head up more frequently. And so scientists will now will actually watch zebras at a watering hole and see that the time they spend with their head down changes if they were born of a mother who experienced the trauma of a lion attack at the watering hole months earlier. Wow. That's how we operate. And Candell's perspective is that that's not really a controversial phenomenon. It's an evolution phenomenon, and it's a marvel. He celebrates it in snails uh, and in other organisms as well. So for me, that changed the whole conversation about memory. I stopped arguing with people about whether babies had it, whether prenates had it, if babies had it, when did they have it, and how much. I just stopped arguing. There was no point. It is. Memory is. How it works in each organism is slightly different, and it, it depends a little bit on the um, event. So big-time events, events that have to do with survival, or at least the organism uh, experiences them as having to do with survival are more likely to be remembered than events that don't. 
So now all of a sudden we're not even talking about memory capacity. We're talking about the nature of the event to be remembered has something to do with whether we remember it. Mm-hmm. Change for me. So the conversation to me got a lot more interesting about what babies remember and when they remember it and why they remember it and what they do with it when they remember it. I think as you're talking about this, I'm immediately going to the Ainsworth Strange situation and that we see patterns in babies because they responded evolutionarily, the attachment system, they, they take on a way of responding that will increase the likelihood of the caregiver responding to them. So it's, it's just, and, and there seem to be certain patterns that babies take on um, with great diversity within those patterns, you know, the way we think. We're not, clinicians aren't so keen on putting things in a certain box, but I've often thought about how can someone that little be such an expert on what their parent needs in order to be responsive to them? It's kind of mind-blowing. That wonderfully circular because it, it means that, that what the baby needs and what the parents need moves in a, in a rhythm, in a complete circle, and each gives to the other in order to get Yes. Babies are not nice to mommies and daddies just because they're sweet kids. Mm-hmm. In the beginning, they're nice to mommies and daddies, and they do the things that mommies and daddies like because it brings them nourishment, and it brings them attachment behavior, which is pleasing. Yes. Yeah. And, and so they figure out fairly quickly what behaviors are more pleasing and what behaviors are less pleasing to the caregiver. And so there's where we can see that intergenerational transmission of attachment. Yeah, fascinating. Unless there's an interruption, unless there's an overwhelming experience that wipes out the, the rhythm of the exchange. Yes, yes, yes. Um, The thing that followed, for me at least, again, this is only uh, Michael Trout's mental development and maturing over the years, nobody else's. Uh, But I began to wonder, as so many people did in the 80s and 90s, so what do we do with that information from the environment that we're remembering? By we, I mean babies, but I also mean all of us, really. mm -hmm. If, If it's true now, we can say for certain the babies see, observe, notice, and remember, then what do they do with that? Does it just lie there in a, in a pile in our brains uh, to be sorted through at a later date when we're smarter? Well, it turns out the answer is probably yes and no. Some of it does lie there waiting a time when we can do a better job of sorting, but an awful lot of it is turned into, in the moment, a kind of story. Um, we, we struggle to make meaning out of experience very quickly. The idea that a baby is, lies there like a lump and we pour stuff into him and it lies there in a lump inside of him just seems to be quite wrong. Babies are extremely active in noticing, observing, taking in, and then meaning 
making about their experience. And that got me into uh, beginning to, gee, I don't know if I just heard it better. I was always hearing it from people and I just heard it better or differently, but it got me into hearing people's real stories about the stories. So that for the first time I began to notice that things that happened to people long ago constituted not only events with content that made a story, this happened to me and then that happened next, but also this happened to me, that happened next, and my mind made this meaning out of it that I can't seem to shake to this day, even though there have been abundant data since that time that suggested I was wrong. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. On that day, I felt terrified and worthless, and I concluded that my big brother was going to be of no help to me in situations like this. And you know, I don't trust that sucker since. Mm -hmm. I can't quite mm -hmm. take that idea. So there's, so there's the the narrative story of what happened, the story of what happened, and then there's the meaning making narrative. Um, in there. And um, I think of John Bowlby saying that early models are persistent. They like that word. Um, not that they absolutely could never be changed, but they're persistent, even the, in the face of no longer being effective. Yes. Meanwhile, in, in the middle of all this, I still remember the day uh, Siegel said from a podium, <clears throat> the guy we spec expected a lot of biological stuff from, said, you know that old wives' tale? It's not what happens to you, it's what ma you make out of it. Well, guess what, folks? Neurobiologically, that's right. The story, that is the content of what happened to us, is only a part of the story. The real story is in what we made out of it. The story we wrote about the story which is unique for every person. Yes. And that's what's beautiful and that's what's challenging. And of course, what that opened up, in my, in my world at least, especially it opened it up for foster and adoptive parents, is to start wondering if all that is true, if this kid in my care has been profoundly affected by something that happened, but has also been profoundly affected by a narrative he wrote in his mind about that thing that happened long before he got to me. Well, what in the world am I supposed to do about it? And that world became a fascination to me. What, right. make, what makes narrative stick? What makes trauma stick? Can any of it ever be influenced? Because at that time, the prevailing idea, which I think is very strong today outside of those of us who are very involved in this was, you'll love them, you'll give them a different experience and then that will be fine. And of course, often, at least not infrequently, that's exactly right. But what we didn't notice is that new experience was why it was working. When it works, it works because it challenges, challenges without anyone ever speaking about it. 
the original narrative. The actual event of events of today in which I'm loving you in spite of what a creep you are, my, my foster or adoptive child, that is in and of itself a challenge to your narrative that suggests that you cannot be loved. And that's where the change is occurring. If the child experiences that as a challenge, then he will change. If he doesn't, if it's not enough of a challenge, maybe it didn't last long enough. As a challenge, it has to, it has to challenge my narrative for 11 months and three days. And if it doesn't, if you only love me and it's only 11 months, I still hold to my original narrative that you, neither you nor anyone else can or will, and you will throw me away. But there are many kids, as you know, for whom even the lived experience of being loved doesn't matter. Because the narrative, the narrative says not only I cannot be, but it's really either stupid or dangerous or both to allow myself to be. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that um, if we want to think of this as cognitions, um, there's this cognitive dissonance that we have to create like something coming up against what is set in my mind of how this goes. And, and uh, I see kids too struggle to be sort of there, but not there, you know, even, even for example, in, in Theraplay, a model, you know, I'm fond of and teach, you know, where children say, don't touch me while extending their hands. And I always feel that that represents this conflict. I want you, it's not safe to have you. I want you, it's not safe to have you. And you can, you can see the struggle inside with that narrative. And imagine the struggle then for the parent to try to get it right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. <clears throat> So the next wave of challenge and fun for me was seeing if there were in fact ways to influence narratives. Yes, that, that, that's what begs the question at the moment, right? I bet. And I stumbled across um, two different avenues in that regard. Uh, one had to do with the biology, uh, the neurobiology of trauma, where Challenging the narrative of the traumatic event was pushed against the ways the brain had stored the event in such a way that the brain reacted even before the child or the, even the adult, for that matter, could get a hold of it. So in other words, the child is kicking and screaming or otherwise reacting long before anybody's got a chance to, to even notice that this thing that the child is experiencing right this minute reminds him of the earlier thing that happened. Mm -hmm. I think we got a, a clearer look at that when boys started coming back from, well, we did when boys started coming back from Vietnam, but we were too stupid to know what it meant. But certainly when they came back from Afghanistan and then the other uh, countries that we attacked after that, 
as they came home, we saw them reacting to all sorts of things back home that were nothing whatsoever like the original traumas they experienced there. And yet for, for their brains, they felt exactly the same. And so they reacted as if they did the same. That taught us a lot about foster and adopted children. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, www.theknowledgecenteratchadoc.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. This episode is the ninth in our series with Michael Trout. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.